Anybody there? Hi, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you, Monica? Doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty awesome. All right. I think we are good to go. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so, so excited to get to talk to you about all kinds of stuff, playwriting and your multifaceted approach to creativity. You've done just about everything there is to do in the theater. So I'm really looking forward to picking your brain about all kinds of stuff. Well, I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and I really enjoy just hearing from everybody. Oh yeah, this is this has been such a phenomenal learning experience for me. I feel less sheltered, that's for sure. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting yeah. out of my shell. So uh, if, if I may ask, how did you get started in the theater? When did that begin for you? As a really small child, like, you know, first, second grade, whatever, um, I was in church plays, in school plays. Um, my parents put me in like all sorts of active school activities. They put me in arts and sports, and clearly I thrived in one and not in the other. Um, <laughs> but I grew up in a really small town uh, in the middle of nowhere in Florida. Mm. Um, and and so that was, there was outlets like that for children, but there weren't really sort of beyond that. But somewhere around the end of elementary school, um, my father made a comment while we were in the library one day, you know, because they had like a little movie section so you could get, you could check out movies. Mm. And they had a rather large section of filmed Shakespeare plays. Mm. Um, and my father was like, well, you like historical stuff and you like doing these school plays. You'll probably like Shakespeare. And that was kind of the end of that for me. Like we, we checked out as many of them as we could. Like, I think I probably watched like 13 different <laughs> Shakespearean <laughs> plays on film between like my fourth and fifth grade year. And I would just like have random conversations with adults because like, I just assumed that this was something that everyone watched, you know, and I'd, I'd make small talk about like the differences between much ado about nothing and as you like it or, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, I just sort of continued watching plays uh like my father took me drove me like almost probably an hour and a half maybe two hours away mm. to see a stage production of a midsummer night's dream mm. like when i was sick in sixth grade um and and it was like just this huge thing of like oh we've i've, I've found a, a live performance let's go and see it and those really became like the highlight of my year every Every year we would go and see one of these. Mm. Um, and uh, so then I went to college and I wasn't even thinking of studying theater. And there wasn't really a theater program because I was at a, a small public liberal arts college that was highly focused on academics, oh. sort of to the, the detriment of some of the, the more creative arts. And I was looking at graduate programs and there was a program at uh, Mary Baldwin, which was connected to the American Shakespeare Center, or is still connected to the American Shakespeare Center. Um, but that's how I found out about it, because the American Shakespeare Center has a, a touring show, and they had come to my college and brought, you know, like they would do sort of things in rep. So mm. you'd get like Hamlet one night, and then the next night you'd get Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm -hmm. with the same cast. Oh, man, that's epic. 
<laughs> Amazing. Just oh, stellar stuff. Like the the work that they do has always just been fantastic. But so I I started I was like, okay, well this is an interesting program because it's it combines scholarship and performance at the same time. And so I got there, I went in as a scholar and then immediately switched gears and was like, nope, I just want to do art all the time. And <laughs> and so that's really how I got into doing theater. Um, and because I sort of came at it very late, I was like, well, I'll just do whatever I can, wherever I can. Mm. And um, so, you know, I've built sets, I've, I've made a lot of costumes, I've directed, <laughs> I've acted. If, if you know, I've, I've done lights, I'm not great at sound, but I've done it. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's what I admire about your work. Just looking, you know, firsthand at the website and the, and the work that you're putting out there, you have the willingness to just construct, to create, to uplift the craft and the story in any shape or form. And I think that's what I admire about people like you in the multidisciplinary arena. And, and it makes you a better theater artist. Like you, you've been through every single nook and cranny of the the complete theater craft that I find that it's probably made you a better playwright. Is that a good assumption? I definitely think so. Um, because when I'm writing, A, I like to write things that are maybe a little bit beyond a classic living room drama. Mm. I write a lot of science fiction, fantasy, historical fiction. And so I'm as I'm crafting it, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is how it has to be designed. But I'm thinking about like, okay, how might I create this if I were given it as, as a complete script? Mm -hmm. um, and if I can come up with an idea of how something might be staged, then, then I know that it's possible, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so then I can sort of expand those boundaries and, and say like, okay, well, I'm going to write about robots and, and I can think about how I would stage that, but then other people can stage it very differently. And so you're not beholden to your own idea. You feel, you feel like you're used to ha to having the flexibility of letting other people's point of view. in. and I always find that that seems to be a big hurdle for creatives in theater where they want things done their own way rather than just allowing the thing to exist because it's big enough to accommodate for everyone else's point of view. Is that, has that been your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I, I came from, uh, like in graduate school, a lot of the work that we were doing was very collaborative. Um, in addition to sort of some very traditional straightforward, like director down productions, which, you know, everyone does. We also did a lot of devising work, which was a lot of fun. Oh, I love that. And so I sometimes find that in my writing, I'll leave something very open-ended and then, you know, a dramaturg or, or someone will come back and be like, okay, actually you need to make some choices here. <laughs> don't, don't leave it so open-ended. Um, but then I find that I'm making those choices um, that still leave for uh, a lot of creative input. I've just made a decision and that actually expands that moment and allows um, it to be bigger than what I initially thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've mentioned that you got a late start with, with the theater and you felt like this need to catch up. But as I'm checking out your, 
New Play Exchange, you have been remarkably prolific. So I don't know what you're talking about. It seems like you've done a lot of work. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> so much of that has been in the past three years. Is that um, right? So much of it started with, you know, the lockdown and the mm. pandemic. Because I, I was writing, um, but I was also teaching full time oh. and directing on the side and trying to write academic conference papers. So my first full length play took about six years to write. Oh, really? Um, and and it was just kind of and, and actually a lot of it was in the last little bit, um, you know, like I wrote it took me years to sort of find time to sit down and write this and write that and a couple of pages here and there. And then suddenly, like, I kind of realized that this was the thing that I actually wanted to be putting a lot of my energy into. Mm. Um, and so that was 2018 that it just sort of clicked and oh, I, I finished that play. Um, and that was, that was my robot Shakespeare play. Um, <laughs> and, and it got a reading at like the local community theater and then it won that festival and therefore got a production the next summer through the same company. And then I, I wrote that and I was kind of like, okay, well, I've got a background in Shakespeare. Um, I've written my Shakespeare sci-fi play. Do I have anything else? Mm. I'd also written at that point, like a, a short play about uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, and, and so I was like, okay, well, I've kind of exhausted like my, the things that I'm like really scholarly, like knowledgeable about. Uh, and I wasn't sure that I was going to, I was like, well, what, what do you write next? Like, I don't know. Um, and then the pandemic happened and I just sort of sat at home and I needed an outlet for sort of everything that was going on. And I'm a very social person. So not being able to like go outside was very difficult for me. Mm. So just getting up every day and sitting down at my computer and writing was amazing. Um, and a lot of the plays that I wrote in the first couple of months there, those haven't actually made it to NPX. Um, mm. But I, I've written, I think. I think it was 2020, I realized that I wrote over 20 or 25 short plays. Holy shit. That's epic. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, because I really like needed to. Um, mm. And it was an outlet for me. Interesting. So do you feel that having this forced isolation, you felt like you had to put down the conversations that you would normally have with people? Do you feel like that's how playwriting came to be during this era of your life, the, the pandemic era? Maybe. And definitely, I think, uh, taking some of the ideas of things that I would not given myself time to really explore. Because um, I think the thing that the isolation really um, impressed upon me is that because I have done so many different things, I was kind of spreading myself too thin. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't putting enough energy where I wanted it to be. Um, and having that time where I kind of had to sit alone with myself for a while um, gave me the clarity to sort of realize that that writing allows me to sort of explore things more fully. You know, like I love designing because I can focus in on one thing. Or I love, you know, directing and sort of steering the whole ship. But playwriting gives me the opportunity to really explore all of theater at once. Yeah. Yeah. It's the total 
piece of craft of story. It's not just um, a piecemeal approach in a way. So I, I got to ask you a question about development because you being a dramaturg might be able to give me a more up-to-date status or, or at least a, a good contemporary perspective because I think a lot of my stuff is already quite antiquated. But do you feel like in this country we overdevelop plays? Can you give me your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's, that, that can be a problem. Um, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, particularly like looking at the new play exchange, you'll see that the list that's up right now on the dashboard um, is plays that have not been produced yet by several really great BIPOC playwrights and and they're like the the top recommended plays or or something like that Mm -hmm. and they have so many recommendations on the new play exchange um they have if you look down at their history a lot of them have had lots of readings and they haven't been produced yet and some of them are like some of my favorite plays that i've read (laughs) on the new play exchange but i do think that it it sort of depends on where you know, like I know that you, as like a filmmaker, from what I've I've heard, mm-hmm. you know, like make a lot of your own stuff or have in the past. Like I've I've done a lot of my work through like fringe festivals, mm-hmm. taking um, plays and producing them myself, or or working with friends to sort of create opportunities when yeah. maybe the like submission process isn't a space that you can like get something through. Right. Right. And it's, it's a tough question. I mean, I don't mean to like throw you into the, (laughs) into the deep end because it's such a, I start with such like huge problems. Right. Uh, I've looked at it for so long that it was one of the reasons why I felt like I moved away from theater about 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm finally kind of coming back to it is because you felt like you were creating work that was not necessarily and any playwright says this, right? Any storyteller says, this, oh, you can't put my work in a box, right? But I, right. I feel that we need to have jagged edges in theater. And my mm, personal mm-hmm. opinion is that new development a lot of times tends to chip away a lot of the the uniqueness of perspective that is in the work. And so maybe it is a superficial frustration about it, but I, I'm curious of your perspective on that because you do bring a sense of the traditional and the, the, I guess, classical approach to say, oh, there's value in Shakespeare and we got to keep producing Shakespeare, but we also got to give opportunity to new work. And so I'm just curious how you manage that in your head as a new playwright who also has this deep background in Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that's important to note about Shakespeare is that he was also an actor. Mm. And he was a shareholder in the company that he was writing for. And so, like, if if we want to really dig deep and, and go back, developing new work is a very Shakespearean process. Mm. Because, I mean, theater was so new, right? Like, it was, it was the internet of its day, sort yeah. of, at the time yeah. that, uh, you know, because, like, the public playhouse in London was a very new development. And and Shakespeare was like, let's just play in it. <laughs> so I 
I think that there's that. Um, I, I do. I, I think that there is value in classical stories because I enjoy them. You know, yeah. like I really love sort of the messiness of Shakespeare. Everyone kind of, you cut a script for time and stuff, but people tend to like clean it up a little bit for production. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are just some like weird things that happen in Shakespeare plays. And I think that that's fun. And so I love staging that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, there's something really awesome about creating new voices um, and putting new perspectives on things. Um, and so that's sort of how I I look at it as like, we we shouldn't do one to the detriment of the other. Mm. There has to be a balance there. Yeah. Yeah. So can you share a moment when you were working on your, your Shakespeare sci-fi play where, where you said, I finally got the balance right? Or was there a problem that you overcame within the production or the creation of this play where you said, this thing is clicking now? I got a grant for the costumes um, because the, the theater that was putting on the show, they were like, okay, so... <laughs> We want to do your show, but we don't really have a lot of period costumes. Mm. Um, and and so I got a grant um, and they were like, great, can you do the costumes? <laughs> and and so, you know, That's like such they... a theater thing. I'm sorry. That is like the most theater <laughs> thing ever. It's like we need money and we need this. Maybe you should do both of those things. <laughs> right. Like, um, sorry. Go ahead. So so here I am as the playwright in the room. And working very closely with the director, um, making sort of like last minute changes to the script, but also hand sewing these elaborate Elizabethan costumes. I mean, I did do them on like a sewing machine. It wasn't like all hand sewn. I wasn't that ridiculous, but there were aspects like, you know, like I wanted a specific type of flow to Queen Elizabeth's skirt, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm like hand sewing cartridge pleats into place to make it fit right. And like we're doing makeup tests and like so so show opens and it's kind of elaborate in such a way that I'm also having to help everyone get into costume. And so I'm just sitting, you know, I remember sitting there like opening night um, or maybe it was like final dress. I think it was probably final dress, Mm. you know, with the actor who played William Shakespeare, Zach Hanna. They are such a delight to work with and and like creating this wood grain with like on their face um because it was a painted because it's a robot but it's a wooden robot like oh, wow. a, a wooden automaton um wow, that's, that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> so so like full rough and doublet and all of that and then this like wood grain <laughs> painted on their face and it was just this moment of like things really clicking, you know, working with the actors sitting there, putting all of the pieces together um, and, you know, and, and really seeing it come to life because I can imagine, you know, how the robot, um, you know, becomes William Shakespeare, but being able to see um, 
everyone sort of inhabit all of those pieces and that process, right? Like that moment when you're sitting in the dressing room and everyone goes from, you know, Rick and Glenn and Pamela and Jan, you know, and Zach to Richard Burbage, Cuthbert Burbage, Queen Elizabeth, John Dee, um, William Shakespeare, you know, like that watching that transformation um, was really Oh, such a beautiful moment. Um, that wasn't really about writing. That was more. <laughs> sure, sure. But, <laughs> but, but, but that was that moment of like everything kind of came together. Oh, and that's wonderful to hear because I hope that we can empower playwrights to do their own work. I think that's sort of like my biggest, my biggest thing that I believe in now because I, as many institutions are trying to be more welcoming to folks who are on the fringes of the industry, there's still a need for artists to, you know, pick up their their abilities and produce something. I mean, I just feel like a lot, personally, a lot of my life has been spent producing, but waiting for something to happen. And I feel like that kind of stifled me a little bit. Now, I know that a lot of folks don't have the wherewithal sometimes to want to do that, but it's it should be a viable option to self-produce and not frowned upon. Do you think that this is still something that is frowned upon to do DIY independent producing. I mean, I think that there is such a strata in theater, right? There's um, a, there's like New York and Broadway. And if you're not there, then you're not there. Right. Yeah. And then there's, there is professional theater and then there's the like semi-professional and community theater. and and self-producing. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I've always said that some of the best work that I've done, I've not been paid for. Um, Mm. and some of the like less successful work, you know, has been the stuff that I've gotten paychecks for. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I, I think that the, that strata of, you know, well, this is professional and that is amateur and like near the twain shall meet. Like, Hey, I do think that that it depends on your environment, like your city, mm-hmm. um, where you're living as to where, whether that, how, how much mobility there is, yeah. um, in that. Um, and I also think that there is, you know, I, one of the things that I've consciously done is made this choice that like, virtual theater is theater. Um, I love that. I absolutely love it. So like if I had a virtual production, which I've had several virtual productions since most of my plays have been written during the pandemic and you know, like those are productions. And then I've also had like virtual readings and those were readings. I try not to talk about them as if they were lesser because in some instances they were so much more Right. Like putting someone in a tiny box, you know, next to another person on a tiny box has kind of brought some things that I've written to life in ways that they wouldn't on the stage. Mm -hmm. And I I do agree that we're moving into this new time and there's perhaps people who are more purist about the craft who say, no, that doesn't count. That's not something virtual theater is not something that should be taken seriously or it's merely an exercise. But the world is too connected now to be ignored as a, as a medium, I think. Well, 
And I was talking to someone who lived in Canada who's like, it takes, you know, hours and hours to drive to the nearest theater. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know what doesn't? (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) A virtual performance that's being streamed on, on YouTube or like, I know people who are creating theater that's just streamed on Facebook that's filmed in like a closet in their home. And I think that that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's also like an amazing equalizer, right? And you're talking about oh, yeah. self-producing, you know, I may not be able to afford renting out a venue, but if I can have my, you know, $15 a month Zoom subscription, I can... <laughs> <laughs> I can yeah, rehearse you can. wherever, you know, like whenever I want and I can and share my work with people all across the globe. I, I had a reading with a friend, uh, like, you know, like a couple of friends. I asked them to read an early draft of a script. And one of my friends was in Denmark and she was like, yeah, as long as you can do it at a time that I can, you know, that, that it's not, you know, the middle of the night. And I think actually <laughs> she did do it in the middle of the night. Oh, wow. But like, amazing, right? Yeah. But that's that's the beauty of it, and I think you bring up a good point about the uh, the aspect of of neutralizing the playing field a bit. Um, obviously, you know I'm from Wyoming, and the great beautiful thing is that your play, for instance, I get to see your play now that you put up on YouTube, and right. normally it would take me four hours to get to Denver to the Denver Center where we normally go see shows, and what a privilege it is to get to see your work in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's something that that is going to happen now for tons of people and especially giving people that normally don't have access to theater to experience it in some way so that they eventually become potential practitioners. I mean, I just think that's just such a phenomenal opportunity and I don't know why the powers that be or the folks who are at the very echelons of the craft don't consider that there are people who can't afford their tickets and who aren't living in these in these spaces. They deserve theater too, of high right. quality. I and, mean, I I, I yeah. do want to shout out the like few theaters that I have seen. Um, I think it was the the No Theater in Cincinnati. Mm. I think that's the one. Um, did a production of like this Beauty and the Beast adaptation that I had read online. It's called Glassheart. Um, it's on NPX. And it's gorgeous. And reading it, I was like, oh, I would love to see it. Well, obviously, like, I'm not (laughs) able to just go to Cincinnati for, (laughs) you know, just to see one performance. Um, But they did this full run and then they filmed it Mm -hmm. and they put it on demand. And I was able to just like wake up early one morning before anyone else in the house was awake and watch, you know, and then here I am crying before everyone else is awake because it's just so beautiful. But like, I got to see everything that they did with that set with like, it was a fully realized production and, and they took the time to like give a high quality film and just put it up on demand for a short period of time. Um, What an amazing thing. And it, doesn't like it takes a little bit of extra negotiation of rights a little bit of sound and video equipment which you probably already have for like archival purposes anyway Mm. and a little bit of extra like manufacturing on the 
the streaming site and I, you know, like putting it up and, and having it ready and available through tickets. But that's a little bit of extra work. And now people all over the world get to see that. Right. And you know what they said about Hamilton when they first put that on Disney Plus? I think even Lynn Manuel Miranda may have said the first weekend that it was on Disney Plus, more people saw it than the entire run of Hamilton on Broadway. I mean, just think about the the access and how exclusionary that that seems when you really think about what what happens on stage. But I guess that's the beauty of it, right? In some ways, it's that it's a very intimate experience that you get to have on stage. And I think that's kind of the the duality of this, where I go back to this feeling like, but isn't that the special thing about theater that it's only yes a handful of people in a space? Uh, I'm and you're about all that. like breathing together and so i i actually just moved myself Mm. and i'm i'm now in the middle of wisconsin (laughs) and so i drove an hour last night to see a play in a barn um like i mean it's a theater but it's it's a theater like it's yeah yeah i love it (laughs) and it was Lovely. Like the, the audience was um, very responsive. There were lots of like, <gasps> like dramatic gasps, right? Like really, it was a comedy. So there was, of course, lots of laughter, but like people were anticipating because it was, you know, like the, the premise was that someone doesn't know that they're like living in their New York apartment with them. Um, so... <laughs> So you like watching everyone's watching the person like sneak around and not see and they're just like when when are they coming back you know but like you could hear it and so like that that's the thing that we're not getting in in Zoom theater um but then at the same time if you use an active chat you can have lots of interesting you know I I've done some theater where I've been encouraging people like go ahead and put your responses to to the things that you're seeing in the yeah. chat and but I, I think it's different, and I think that both are wonderful because they both give us different things, um, and I think that they can live side by side. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's really like, but watching that last night, it was so fun <laughs> to just have this entire room full of people like experiencing this these sensations together. Um, really, really lovely. That's a beautiful feeling. Now, when you've been doing teaching, how long have you been teaching and what are some takeaways from the kind of work that you do as an educator or teacher and how, how does it affect your work? So I taught for about five years. Um, I was the technical director and production manager for a small theater department at a small liberal arts college. And one of the things that I sort of realized is that I'm really great one-on-one and and I really loved working with students on productions, teaching in classrooms, like having an entire room full of eyes on me does not put me at my best. Mm. So I I really love being able to communicate through having conversations, um, lecturing, much, much less my style. But I think the takeaway from me for me was that students have so much that they they want to explore 
and really trying to give them the space to do that safely mm-hmm. and give them, you know, cause like really my, my job, um, while I was teaching my, my job primarily was to manage the black box space. So it really uh-huh. was like a lab for students and a lot of the work that I did that I really loved doing was sort of in the spaces between classes. <laughs> uh, I worked a lot with the student theater group and they would put on other like uh, extracurricular shows. Um, and, and so they would create, they created their own uh, writing group, like um, like a, their own new works festival sort of mm. thing. And they, they also created a space for like first time directors, like, Oh, you haven't had a chance to take the directing class or you have taken the directing class and you don't have a, a chance yet in the curriculum like here. And so I got to teach them sort of how to negotiate rights with playwrights um, to get, you know, one acts and stuff like that. And, and giving students that space, like they, they would come up with some amazing things. I had a student for the new scripts thing, write a play about sort of like free will <laughs> versus predestination using a script. So like the, at one point, this like one of the actors has to stay on script and the other actor has to do improv Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds incredible. I, I'm just trying my- to, like, <laughs> negotiate, like, how uh, how do I, you know, like, how, how do the actors keep the story going? And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, oh, man. Holy such shit. That is such a, that that could be a remarkable exercise. I mean, to play in that kind of format I, I mean my old man brain just exploded <laughs> yeah i mean oh, the vitality of that idea sorry go ahead come up with you know watching students come up with new ideas was fantastic like we a similar exercise no i think it was this like the same event maybe not the same iteration but that same festival that we would do of like new works the cap was like you could only have six actors and one guy wrote an adaptation of a christmas carol but it was very like tongue-in-cheek satire um it was a christmas carol as presented by liberty mutual um (laughs) it was hysterical um but also like yes to to really like accentuate how many cratchit children there were um one of the cratchit children was literally just like a broom with a face painted on it and that was like written into the script of like okay so there's bob cratchit there's cratchit's wife and and then there are like four children plus this broom um (laughs) so that they could get everyone on stage and then also still have more more children um and those those moments like were really fantastic absolutely special watching watching students create things that were really meaningful for them um and were really like okay we've got limited resources how do we expand upon that um and and that was a lot of fun and you know that's always been my philosophy and the reason why theater to me is is a bit depressing sometimes because I've had these conversations before with my friends who, who are practitioners who say 
we don't dare in the theater. We we don't venture into the world of imagination unless unless it becomes children's theater or something that is outside of the norm. I mean, I feel like the imagination of something gets kind of chipped away the higher up the the strata that you mentioned kind of <laughs> kind of goes, right? Yeah. But I'm curious if you think that there is a way to redeem that within academia or if there's only that kind of that kind of I guess freedom outside of it. Well, I mean, I think that academia has that privilege sometimes, you know, it depends, every case is different, but like often of not having to worry about keeping the lights on. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, So, so there's a lot of room to explore. And those instances that I just mentioned, those were all sort of extracurricular things that people, you know, students were putting together, you know, on the nights that the theaters were, you know, like the official theater department was closed, you know, sort of thing. Um, And, but the, I think that there's also a space, you know, I've mentioned fringe festivals as, you know, like I've, I've seen some really fun and groundbreaking, really pushing boundaries Mm -hmm. shows that are done in, you know, what has to clearly be someone's suitcase, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you've got a a 15 minute load in and, you know, a 15 minute load out and you've got an hour to do the show and they'll turn the lights off on you if you (laughs) go over. I've seen that happen. Um, Oh, goodness. But the shows that people put on are fantastic. Um, I saw a show that was like a live tarot reading eco-theater play. Wow. And the the premise was uh, that this was a priestess from Mars who had come back to Earth to, like, learn the archive. So so Ooh. a person in the audience, like, so the archive was connected to this tarot deck. Someone would, in the audience would draw a card, and then that would, like, trigger a performance where she would inhabit the, the like, video recording, you know, sort of thing <laughs> of uh, of this, like, early expedition because she's trying to like learn the history of what happened mm-hmm. um why the the ecosystem sort of fell apart on earth so that she can understand what's going on wrong with mars and all of these things mm-hmm. so like i mean super elaborate world building very complicated plot it's being told in a non-linear fashion because it's dependent on the tarot cards and then at the end like she brings it all together and delivers this message using the the tarot deck um about like sustainability and taking care of the earth around Mm. us right like and it's literally a person a tarot deck and a tablet um (laughs) like you know so that she could mime the calling up of the various things in the archive um Mm. with with her mobile device um that was it it was so good uh so i think that there's a lot of space and i know that like even even going to French festivals is not accessible for everyone. Um, in Florida, I was fortunate to be close to the Tampa Fringe, and I actually participated in the first like two years of that festival when oh, it was cool. just brand new. There's the Orlando Fringe, really close, which is big. Um, and but you know, not they're they're not everywhere. But when you can get to one, and when you, you know, there there are some friends that I've made who like that's what they do is they just travel from the the circuit 
mm-hmm. with whatever show they're working on that year. Um, and I think that that's really a place where like cool, innovative things are happening. But I also think that it's it's difficult to make your own opportunities from nothing because yeah. because theater is so collaborative. But when you can find the community that's right for you, whether that's virtual um, or in person, um, right now the thing that is the best for me has been someone on Twitter, and I know you've talked a lot about writers on Twitter, but a a friend of mine, now a friend, but like someone I was just following on Twitter was like, hey, I'm going to write some plays during this month. Like it was a 31 and 31 sort of challenge. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to do that? And I kind of responded with like a, yeah, if you, (laughs) you set it up. Um, And so like anyone who responded to that initial call sort of got all connected through like a a private Facebook group. Mm. And right now, like any time, you know, someone can just be like, Hey, I'm working on a short horror play. Anyone else want to write short horror plays with me? And then we'll all read them at the end of the month. Right now we're working on comedies. I'm supposed to write a comedy sometime this month. Comedy is very (laughs) hard for me. Uh, (laughs) So I'm going to write some sort of short comedy play. um, And I'll get together with all of the other, you know, anyone else in the group who also wrote a short comedy play and we'll just read them together very informally. Um, and then I'll probably put it out there maybe on NPX, um, Mm -hmm. and see where it goes. Right. But having that community of just being able to like reach out and say, Hey, I'm putting together a reading of this, um, or, or having a group that we can say like, hey, what what sort of challenges do we want to put for ourselves? Um, and having that writing community to get something started mm-hmm. has been super great. We don't produce, we just sort of, we, we you know, we're a community of writers. Right. But having that as a place to start has been a wonderful community uh, because it's it has been so supportive you know just having people whose work i can really just sink my teeth into and then having them reciprocate has been lovely oh yeah best feeling in the world huh (laughs) yeah now uh i have one more question for you and Mm -hmm. this is originating from a, a quote that you have on your website and it is it is required you do awake your faith from the winter's tale Mm. and as some parting thoughts, I'm curious what that means to you and why Shakespeare can make a dent in our Mm. artistic lives today. Right. Well, so that moment, um, uh, for anyone who's listening, who may not be familiar with the play, this is kind of the end moment and it's a little bit of a spoiler, but, uh, there's a character who has been, reportedly dead for 16 years um and there's a sculpture of her um and then that sculpture comes to life and and like maybe she was really dead maybe she wasn't really dead (laughs) (laughs) maybe she's just been hiding out the whole time um but right before they reveal the sculpture right 
there's the the person who draws back the curtain says it is required you do awake your faith and regardless of whether you believe that it's a a statue that has come to life or a person who's been hiding out the whole time you're going to use the actor right um that actor is going to stand there they're going to like hold a pose for the three minutes or whatever that's required to get through the dialogue before they can come to life and step down off the pedestal. And to me, that moment where you have an actor standing completely still and you're saying this person is a statue, or maybe it's a person pretending (laughs) to be a statue. It's, it, it it's either way you just have a moment where there's what you see is one thing but what your what the story is telling you is something else mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um you know so it's like okay believe that this actor is a statue but maybe that's actually a character that's a pretending to be a statue. Um, And I think that that for me is such this great moment of like, what can't we do in theater? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. If, if I can stand here and say like, ah, this is a sculpture that's going to come to life. Then I can say, ah, but Shakespeare is really a robot. Um, Or I can say, (laughs) (laughs) or, or I can say that like, Cyrano ends up on the moon. Um, or, or I can say that, you know, these two people who are, you know, sitting on the stage together are the last two humans in the universe and they're out on a spaceship alone. And so for me, that's what that quote, that moment does, is it gives me permission it gives i think everyone permission to really do whatever (laughs) (laughs) and and you don't have to do it elaborately right like because it's literally a person standing on the stage behind a curtain Mm. and she's either a statue or she's a person pretending to be a statue but she's there and i think that that's the magic of it that i can you know i've got another play about robots um and shakespeare (laughs) it's a it's a short a 10 minute play um and like i wrote it because of some research that's being done into social robots um Mm. they've got robots that can have conversations with people and and they're doing research into like practical applications um so i wrote a play that explores that and in the the stage directions i'm like so this could be performed by a person it was designed for like this particular robot i don't know when anyone i don't know when any theater is ever going to have access to these robots they're super expensive um Hmm. but i mean you can get like a 30 dollar like children's toy and and reprogram it but anyway um i've never seen that done (laughs) no one has actually used a robot um the but it's been produced several times as a radio play on zoom in person and every time they have an actor, a human actor playing the part of the robot, and every time they do something really interesting, whether it's like auto-tuning the voice or like 
I saw just saw production photos from a production that I didn't get to see. Mm. But they wore this kind of metallic dress. And I was like, ooh, that looks very cool. <laughs> to just have a person standing there very stiffly, very still, and in this metallic, you know, dress that's kind of uh it had like chevrons of different colors of of uh metallic colors. It was wow. nice. Um and have that person be there and be like, I am here to be your friend. Great. <laughs> I love it. I love how simple it can be. Yeah. And yeah. yet how magical and transformative it can be. That's what that quote is for me. Oh my goodness. What a note to end on. Monica, thank you so much for your time, yeah. for inspiring me again to believe that the theater is alive and well because you're in it and working and doing amazing things. And uh, for anyone who's interested in viewing any of your latest projects, I'm going to include them all in the episode description. So folks will get a chance to experience your work and hopefully we can get more eyes on it. But thank you again so much for your time and, and your wisdom. And I hope that we get to chat soon. I'm going to get back to NPX to the new play exchange as soon as I can to start reading some of your plays. And I'm really, Definitely. really excited. Yeah, but thank you and again. And keep putting work out there. Just, you know, writing and putting work into, you know, NPX. I think that it's a really beautiful community. Uh, mm. NPX is a wonderful resource for for anyone who's interested in developing new work to to share in the the process of getting that work out there and getting to know what people are writing today. Amazing. I love it. Thanks again, Monica. I hope that we uh, our paths cross sometime soon on Twitter. I'll be around, but uh, I hope that you have a wonderful Sunday and thanks again for everything. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Hey there. Before I go, I just wanted to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying Arts Calling, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to these episodes. Every little bit helps to bring awareness about these wonderful artists that we're featuring on this podcast. And don't forget to say hi. I'm over on Twitter at Cruisefolio, and I would love to hear from you, love to know what you're working on, and I wish you the best in life and craft. Make art, make haste, and much love. Thank you.